Hello and welcome to the Linkubator podcast series by Linklaters. Are you an aspiring solicitor or even a lawyer who has already started their career journey? Are you curious about technology and innovation and how they are changing the business of law? Then you've come to the right place. In this series, we tap into the minds of legal innovators and disruptors to gain insights and demystify some of the key questions you may have around legal technology and innovation. My name's Hamza Zaveri. I'm a trainee solicitor at Linklaters, and I look forward to being your host. Today, we're going to be digging into the design thinking mindset that is becoming increasingly popular in the world of law. I'm super excited to get into it, so let's begin. I'm honoured to be joined by two very special guests today. We have with us Nicole Braddock, who is a well-known innovator and entrepreneur in the legal technology space. Nicole is CEO and founder of Theory and Principle, a legal tech development and design consultancy firm. So thanks for joining, Nicole. Thanks for having me. And we also have with us Shilpa Bandekar, the global head of innovation at Linklaters, who also has a very interesting background and story, which I'm sure we'll get into. Thanks for joining us, Shilpa. Thank you for having me. It's funny because when I spoke to Shilpa initially about this episode and I told her that Nicole will be joining alongside her as a guest speaker, I sent some excitement and Shilpa told me that she already knows Nicole and that it's going to be a fun conversation. So before we begin, could you tell us um, how you initially met yeah, I think we met after Legal Geek a couple years ago. Uh, we spoke after after my talk and uh, and hit it off, and then uh, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so to start off, for some of our listeners who may never have heard of the concept, Nicole, could you briefly explain what design thinking is? Um, you know, what are we talking about when we're talking about this? Sure. Uh, so I, the the easiest way that I've come to be able to describe it is it's it's really this scientific method that's applied to uh, to to solving sort of business problems, innovation. It's a scientific applied method applied to innovation, right? So scientific method is all about um, creating and testing hypotheses, right? When when you're if you remember back to to grade school, um, you know everybody learns about about that in the context of their science class, um, and it, that's really focused on you know observing and uh, gathering data around sort of the objective and the quantitative. Uh, design thinking is really uh, the scientific method, but what we're really looking for is more subjective and qualitative factors. I think the thing that it includes that's not part of sort of the science is, is observing human behavior and, and using the data to solve problems. So, um, so really it's about bringing people into the process, um, creating a bunch of assumptions, uh, and then going out and testing those assumptions. Um, there are some very formulaic processes around design thinking. Um, we tend to not be wedded to those. Um, I, you know, I think that a lot of people do, um, but for my company, we're very focused on digital products because di design thinking is something that can be applied. And I'm sure Shilpa uses it in a pretty broad range of contexts, including, you know, process design, service design. Um, we're very much focused on product design. You know, how can we build an app that is going to solve our clients' needs and their users' needs? Um, and so from the very start, we start documenting, okay, what assumptions are we making going into this? Um, we'll build prototypes, we'll go out and test prototypes, and we'll bring that information um, back into the 
to the process to make sure that we're we're really meeting user needs along the way. Um, I don't know how clear that was an explanation. I, I I thought it would sound clearer before I started, but then <laughs> I'm sure it did the trick. No, I think, can I just add to something that Nicole said? So I think what a lot of people don't necessarily appreciate is, you know, when Nicole talked about what do people need, it's, I think design thinking, the, the, the base of it is making it more human-centered, right? Putting what our users need over and above what we think they need. And that feels like it's relatively new in legal. Um, it's not so new in product. So um, I, I guess what Nicole, d to go out and test and to get feedback on what people are going to use and how they're going to use, there's that first stage of understanding who your user is and how they're going to use it. And that whole piece around empathy uh, and trying to put yourself in their shoes, which I suspect for you, Nicole, comes quite naturally because that's sort of the space you're in. Sure. Um, yeah. The goal The goal is always product market fit. Yeah. Yeah. But for most lawyers, I think that is quite new because, I mean, I take the DD report as my, my go-to example. Our DD reports tend to be a few hundred, any, any you know, DD report tends to be due diligence report that you do when you're you know, buying and selling companies tends to be sort of 200 pages of text, right, in any standard. Is that actually what your end user wants or needs? Is that how they consume their data? Is that how um, they read it even? Um, is the person you're giving it to even your end user or they're going to then present it to the board or the head of risk and how would then they need to consume that data? So all of that thinking is part of sort of designing your in quotes, product, whether that's a tech product, whether that's a, you know, a service, whatever it is. And I think that's the bit of the design thinking that is interesting to me because it's definitely new for me in, in, in the way lawyers tend to think. I think it's new for all lawyers. <laughs> we, we touched on um, the user-centric focus of design thinking, the empathy side of it, and also some of the, the processes that come with design thinking. So I'm just playing devil's advocate here and at the risk of oversimplifying it a bit, but could it be said that at the heart of it, design thinking is simply the idea of looking at things from the other person's perspective um, and from the user's perspective. And then delivering on it, yes, but quickly. Okay, yeah. So I think there's, so I think you're exactly right. It's thinking about your user, but then delivering a service that caters to that user um, but also caters to the person delivering the service. So, I, I, so again, I'm, I guess I'm, my experience is within Linklaters. It not only has to work for my in-house clients, but it has to work for my lawyers as well. If my lawyers aren't enjoying that process of delivering that due diligence report, then that's not working either. So it's the whole thing. It's, it can be very collaborative where the user gets what they want and the service provider is also empowered to deliver what they think the user needs. Yeah, I think um, it's it's all the users in the system, right? So anything that you do is going to involve the internal, internal lawyers, external clients, probably, you know, staff members who have to touch the the process. They're all considered sort of users of the system, and all of their input is important. Um, and I think uh, the other other thing I'll add to it is just the focus on on uh, testing and iteration. In addition, I think that's that's sort of the the one other missing piece. I would add, Hamza, um, is really really the idea that. Uh, 
um, we never we never are, are certain that what we're building is the right thing for the right user to solve the right problem. Um, and so acknowledging that at the start and keeping an open mind around, okay, well, maybe we're going to take this out to to users and find out this is this is completely not hitting the mark. It's not at all what they need. Um, and we're going to have to we're going to have to circle back and and readjust how we're approaching this problem. And again, that is so new and legal, right? The whole testing, iterating, so prototyping, testing, iterating. Um, for most lawyers that I've worked with, um, is really quite painful. You, most lawyers like giving the perfect product, whatever that is, and the idea that it may not exist, or even to ask people what they want because you're expected to know what they want. Um, it can be quite challenging just to flip them into a different mindset that goes, it's perfectly okay to give you know something that you think is 80% there and then work on feedback to then improve it. Um, it doesn't mean your work product is less than excellent. It's just an excellent prototype. That's exactly right. And I think that's, honestly, that's the biggest challenge we have working with law firm clients um, because uh, they never want to show unfinished work to their clients. And so we often get very far down the development process with lots of money spent uh, before a client ever even, a client's eyes ever even glance over the project. Um, and so we could get to the point where we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and, and find that this is not something anybody wants or needs. Um, and I, you know, I really hope that we can break that because talking to clients, the clients want to see it. They, even if it's a sketch on paper, um, law firm clients want to be able to see those products and they want to be able to give input so that they can make it as valuable for themselves as possible. Um, but we're so scared of that. <laughs> I think the problem often comes with like the, you know, the, the, the partner that sort of owns that relationship uh, is usually pretty nervous about, about uh, showing them parts of a process because they're so removed from, from the process. And do you think, I know I'm not supposed to be asking questions, but I'm curious <laughs> no, to ask that's fine. Nicole. So, you know, the, um, we had talked previously about just the difference between startups, I guess, and, and law firms. And with startups generally, there is a, there's always the fear that you will run out of cash and therefore you have to be really fast. And that forces you to be iterative, right? You just have to keep going to the market and proving that what you're building is exactly what your clients want or your users want. And therefore you're just forced to do it. And I just wonder if that in law firms, because there's no urgency, you, you, you don't factor in how much, how valuable the time is, the time to get to market. Um, so you're okay, like you said, waiting a whole year and spending hundred, you know, several hundred thousands. But more than the several hundred thousands, I'm like, you've lost the year. Like you've lost that time that it takes to actually build something unique um, and valuable because you've just been sitting in your, you know. Yeah, and I, th I think I think the real challenge here is that for a startup, it's mission critical, right? You have to get that product market fit right, otherwise you don't have a business. Uh, law firms are doing quite well <laughs> without without adding additional value to their to their clients' relationships. So it's not seen as mission critical, and so the sort of the urgency to make sure you're nailing it and getting it right is, isn't there. And and we do have some, I think, perverse incentives to uh, in the legal industry where you know, getting awards for putting out an innovative product uh, can be very appealing because it, it sort of says to potential clients, hey, look, we're, we're really working on this, even though the product may not be successful from, from a you know, perspective of, of like the clients actually using it and gaining value from it. So, uh, so I think we get, we get into trouble there because the incentives are, are perhaps a little misaligned uh, when it comes to building a product that's, that's really going to be a success. Sure. And 
even bringing in some of my perspective into it as a trainee and over time I've developed a mindset where the work you're producing is actually a product and you know whilst you're when you're working with supervisors or whoever you're producing work for I've noticed that it's better to go to them earlier in the process find out whether I'm going down the right path whether that's the way they want to see the information and figure out whether the path that I'm going down is the correct one and I've noticed that that has had a much better impact on my development and my relationship with the supervisors and my work product in itself than if I had just produced some piece of work and you know just given it to someone right at the end at that point figured out that it wasn't the way they wanted it I think you've hit the nail on the head right so now if you just extrapolate that what you've done is had a conversation and then it becomes an ongoing conversation with your supervisor or with your principal and it's the same as an institution if you do that with your client you just learn so much about your client uh, you might learn about that matter but you might actually just learn about how they like to work um you know specific nuances of the structures that they have to work within in their institution or the particular constraints that they might have budgetary or otherwise that then actually could inform so much more um of your client relationship than that one particular product that you're delivering to them um and again to me i think the design thinking stuff just comes from taking us being service providers to us being truly collaborative like working with someone rather than working for someone just sure. changes changes things a bit sure and other industries started implementing design thinking way earlier and some already have it well ingrained why has the legal industry been so slow in adopting it and why is it so crucial now i don't know that we've been much slower i mean this these things are all very new uh we've been slow at a lot of things in this industry um uh, but but there is i mean at least there's a lot of talk about about implementing these concepts in law firms um shall you can probably speak more to to whether or not it's actually happening but um but i i don't know that we're we're that far behind and uh, you know i think that the trouble in legal always is that uh law firm revenue keeps increasing year over year so the impetus to to uh it feels less crucial to try to um improve client relationships and, and add value to those relationships and, and and improve processes um when the business is successful i think so i've seen i think we're at a tipping point so i think there's definitely been more momentum recently like i'd say the last couple of years and to me there's a few things that have sort of taken us to that point so i think there's i don't know just regulatory changes and i think the the pace at which things have changed globally and then the volume of things people need our clients now need to be on top of i think the types of risks that we now need to advise on the fact that we actually just have access to better technology to help them through that um and then and I've, i mean i alluded to this before i think there is a generational shift in how we like to consume and how information and how we like to work both inside the firm um our younger lawyers but also our clients and i think all those things together mean i mean no one is no one wants a 200 page report anymore if you can give it to them in a different format no one you know the products you're building nicole no one wants to use products that were designed in the like look like they've been designed in the 1980s when you use spotify and google and everything else in your day to day life so i think that that tipping point of our expectations of the kind of technology that we use and how it's designed 
um, the volume of information that we're expected to keep on top of, but how that that information is surfaced to us. Um, I think those are probably the two things that have that have got us higher up the curve quicker. So if I don't think we would have been having this conversation five years ago, legal design, not not design in 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 legal services, but it's very much now. Everyone appreciates the value. Um, it's just how you, f it comes back to what Nicole said, but it's how you fit it into your day-to-day. -day. Um, that's still the challenge. And I do think generally that firms that have somebody in an innovation role are the ones that are going to be much more likely to be even thinking about this stuff. And I didn't ask Nicole to say that, I promise. <laughs> no, but it, but it helps when you have people whose job it is to think about stuff like this, right? Um awesome. And it's, we tried, and I'll be completely honest on that, we tried um, building something when I first started and it was way too ambitious. So four months in, I'm like, okay, this is, this is going to be, you know, the kind of project you described where we're going to spend hundreds of thousands and waste a year on it. And I may, may not have anything to show for it. So I said, fine, let's do something super simple, start to finish less than two months. <clears throat> and we worked with the graduate recruitment team and redesigned the offer letter. And it was mainly to show that actually you can do design thinking in on a contract. And we needed something very, very simple, seven pages long. But more than anything, we proved the process works. Like, how do you workshop? How do you iterate? How do you uh, show something to people, get their feedback, not take it personally and redesign? And the stuff that sits behind that no one ever talks about, because now the, I mean, the new contract letter looks amazing and beautiful, but it is an entirely digital product. So no more printing of paper. I don't know how many trees we've saved. I don't know how much time we've saved because there's none of the sort of the extra admin. Internally, it used to be a 13-part process because we, we had to map it out to get the letters printed, sent out back into the system. It's now a five-part process. Um, but then we also started measuring these little things like how many phone calls do our, you know, our learning and development colleagues get because something has been unclear or, you know, and now they get none. So it's just, it's all these little things that, and you're like, okay, fine, we've proved that it works. Um, so we ran a design thinking campaign, when was it? I think in November, where we said, anyone in the firm, give us your best ideas of what you think we should change or do differently using the offer letter as, your, as the example. And I think we had like 43 ideas in a week. Um, which sort of is like enough for me to work on now for the next 12 months. Um, <laughs> but but it, I think, it, yeah, it comes back to like picking your, spotting a really simple opportunity, implementing it, um, and then showing the value of doing that to the wider firm. But it does help that that is, my, that is part of my job, right? If, if it isn't, then it's hard to make the time to do it. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think that these processes also help with the current issue you have, which is, uh, there's a lot of ideas and trying to wade through the ideas and figure out what really to prioritize and what's going to have the most impact. Um, you know, that's, I think uh, that's a really good opportunity for prototyping and testing and getting that data um, to, to sort of pr prioritize and decide what what's really going to uh, be worth the, the effort of the team. We talked about the way the world you know, the legal industry is changing and how clients are looking to collaborate more with their law firms through these kinds of initiatives. Um, but innovation has become a bit of a buzzword lately. Um, how would you define innovation? Nicole, do you want to take this one first? Or Sure, yeah. I, 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 
there's a lot of dispute on this, but truly I think it's uh, anything that you do to identify anything that's not working for your clients or for you internally. So that could be a process, that could be technology, that could be a type of service, that could be uh, sort of any piece of the of sort of the delivery of legal services um, and work to make it better, <laughs> which I think sounds you know pretty basic. But, uh, you know, if you take um, uh, something, you know, like a, a way you write emails and you find that your client doesn't, you know, is having a hard time understanding what you're saying and, and you come up with a, a sort of new way that nobody's ever thought of to, to sort of present this information and that little, that little tiny change is going to have impact on your client. And so that alone, I would say fits that definition. Um, so I think that we tend to think of these like big initiatives that are sort of, you know, very, very, um, uh, the, the more disruptive innovations, but truly when you look at like an innovation portfolio of even like some of the most innovative companies in the world, most of those are what we would put in the bucket of sustaining innovations. So like these small innovations that help, um, help keep the, the organization moving ahead and help keep them in constantly improving their relationship with their clients or with their internal users or whoever it might be. Yeah, I think my, my, <clears throat> my take on it is relatively um, similar no surprises there, but it's, I, I tend to define it as just like sort of trying new things, um, doing things differently from how they're done today with the focus on adding value though, or as, as you said, to like make things better. So um, not change for the sake of it, because that tends to be a waste of time and energy. But if you think you're adding value in some way, and that could be really basic, um, sort of like you said, sustaining innovation, what we call efficiency, anything that just creates efficiencies within our existing business model, or anything more disruptive um, that might actually be a little bit more challenging to the business model. Whichever end of the spectrum you're at, if it's something that just improves and adds value to what you're doing. Um, and again, I guess where I sit for me, it's not just our external clients, it's about the experience our lawyers have working at links, right? So if there are things that can let you go home two hours earlier, then let's implement that so that you can go home two hours earlier. Um, so, the, so yeah, so I guess there's a little bit of what is it that just makes our, makes being at Linklaters better for you and that makes working with Linklaters better for our clients. And that could be pretty simple stuff or it could be game-changing stuff. I was to say like this, the simple stuff, the more sustaining innovations, those are, those are hard too. Like, I think, you know, we can make them sound easy because we're also tackling some of the bigger things, but uh, I just, I can put myself back in the shoes of being, you know, a young associate at a law firm and just learning how to practice law and trying to um, do the best work I could for my clients. Uh, the thought of like, you know, poking holes in how we were doing things. Uh, I, I didn't have the mental space for that at the time, you know, because there's so much going on. So, um, so it's not easy to sort of have that mindset and be looking for those opportunities. And also being brave enough then to say it, right? So I, the, the mantra in, inside the building is very much, I'm like, be brave enough to try new things because you do have to be quite brave because, and then be get comfortable with failure because you are going to fail. That's just how innovation works. And then be resilient enough to try again. Sure. And um, so do you have any words of encouragement for students and those who are starting their careers um, and any recommendations on developing this kind of design thinking for them? I don't, I'm not, I mean, words of encouragement, I think this is going to be part of, part of being a professional from here on out. I think that uh, sort of just doing things the way that 
that they've always been done is just is not going to work anymore. So I do think that the newer generations coming into the space already sort of come in with some of this mindset. Um, and uh, so I think that they, they sort of already have a head start there. Um, I, I would say probably don't spend your time reading books on this stuff because um, you know in the end you're going to find your own way of using this type of um, mindset in your day-to-day -day work that's going to um, help you and help your clients. Um, I think that it, there can be there can be a pressure to, to sort of follow some of these formulaic things that sort of come with uh, design thinking and I don't think those those are very useful. Uh, I think everybody has to sort of internalize it and interpret it their own way. Yeah, I would I would agree. I would say before we institutionalize you to like young lawyers coming to, to Linklater's especially, think about everything that you you like to use and that you enjoy outside of being a lawyer and then bring that in, bring that into your day to day because there seems to be just a massive um, gap between how we interact with products and services and technology outside of law. Um, and again, like the way we experience Spotify, the way we experience social media platforms, the way we experience Google, and then you, you come into a law firm and you use B2B services and technology and it just feels very different. So just, it's almost like bring, it's okay to keep questioning, please keep questioning, like challenge why your world inside law doesn't look like your world outside of it. Um, and then just share because the more you share, the more you can take sort of the industry on, on that journey. Um, the only thing I would say maybe read a little bit on is I think the way startups work, because I think there is something about being really customer focused that startups do well, that if you haven't ever worked with a startup, it's quite hard. I, I don't think you'll get it from just working at a big institution or working at a law firm. Um, so whether it's like sort of the lean startup, any like there, there are like basic books that everyone um, talks about. Just pick up a couple, but just knowing how to focus on a client at all, like really focus, um, will probably be useful. Lean startup recommendation—that's a good one. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. But that, yeah, mm. or agile. Yeah, I mean, just pick pick one or go go intern with a startup. Actually, I really enjoyed that those useful insights and um, so to wrap up we have our final question that we ask of all of our guests um, and we kind of touched on this just now as well but can you tell us the name of a book that has changed your perspective in a big way and that would be useful for our listeners so the lean startup is great but so the the book I've read most recently that has that I'm still thinking about and trying not to get upset about is um, Invisible Women, um, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed by Men. Yes. Have you read that one, Nicole? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. So, that, I mean, that's a relatively new book, so it's not a classic in that sense. But that one is, it's just interesting because it's very fact-based, which again, most people in law, are, you know, we, we pride ourselves on focusing on facts and being very, very data-centric. But it's interesting because it it's almost, it shows you where that data is coming from and who is collecting that data and the power of bias in what is otherwise supposed to be a really objective objective fields. Um, so I don't know, this book is really interesting. It's actually equally depressing. It isn't about law, um, but it's, it's, it's about the fact that a lot of things in the world are designed ignoring what, well, ignoring women entirely, right? I mean... It's not that people have thought about women and and 
chosen to ignore it. They've just not thought to think about how women will use certain products, whether it's an iPhone or, I mean, more seriously, sort of car safety features. So I would recommend the book. It's only half the population, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> but it does make you question everything, right? I mean, it's a... It's, uh... Yeah, no, that's a good one. Yeah, my, mine are less exciting, um, and they're they're just they're the they're so product books, the product authors really that I I've come to to really rely on. Um, one's name is uh, Laura Klein, and one is Erica Hall. They're both um, uh, U.S. based uh, sort of UX professionals, um, and they have some really really excellent books in this space that, um, you know, I still use Laura Klein as a book called Build Better Products. Um, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I still crack the book open pretty regularly. Um, Erica Hall has a new book called Just Enough Research. Um, that's, uh, you know, about the importance of getting out there and making sure that uh, you're talking to people, but, you know, you don't always need to overdo it and gives you some practical points there. So I would say that um, less, uh, <laughs> less existential, uh, and and sort of um, big picture than than the other, but uh, but really practical. Much more useful, I suspect. <laughs> Thanks so much for for such useful insights. It's been it's been an honor having both of you on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. 